And that was The Smiths with a track titled These Things Take Time that was from the album A Hatful of Hollow. This is David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should, always playing the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be Paul Simpson from The Wild Swans all the way from Liverpool. So you're going to find out more about life, love, poetry and the hazards of being in an indie pop band from back in the day right through to the present because I've got lots to talk about and so did Paul. So I want to bring you that interview in about four easy to digest little segments but to get the party rolling I think we should play your favourite and mine. This is Bringing Home the Ashes. Whoa. 
Sharp Band Sounds, that is the Wild Swans with a track titled Bringing Home the Ashes. That came from their 1988 album, which was also titled Bringing Home the Ashes. Hello, this is David Eastall. Indeed. It's not my fault. Blame my parents. Anyway, this is the C86 show and this week's special guest is going to be Paul Simpson from the Wild Swans because I spoke to him a few weeks ago to find out about everything and more about life in an indie band. And so that interview is going to be coming up really soon. But before that, I think we should have some admin. If you want to contact me, we love your messages. You can via Twitter, Facebook, just go to at C86show. And also all these shows have been podcasts. So you can listen to them on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud and Podbean. So there you go. Check it out. I've probably done about 150, 200. So any indie bands from that golden decade, check it out. I probably have them. Anyway, I think before we have any interview, we'll have another track. This is taken from a John Peel session back in 1982, a fine year for everything, including wine, probably from France. But anyway, this is titled Enchanted. I think you'll like it. We did.
Wild Swans from the track titled Enchanter. That came from a John Peel session recorded, I do believe, do believe, in May 1982 and produced by the one and only Dale Griffin. He of Mott the Hoople. We like that fact. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show and this week's special guest is going to be Paul Simpson from the Wild Swans. And this is the first part of the interview where I began by asking um, about the early years and the musical influence that was Liverpool. And also we probably do mention that famous club back in the late 70s called Eric's. Does he mention it? I bet he does. Anyway, Paul, tell us about those early years. Take it away. Well, it was Eric's really. I, I was, I'd, I'd left school at 16. I'd gone to college briefly and um, I met a chap who was on another course on the floor above one day and he stopped me because he liked my trousers, had these sort of David Bowie trousers on and um, we made friends and he told me he was in a band called Berlin and this turned out to be a guy called um, Roy White who ended up in a band with a guy called Steve Torch, they called White and Torch, and they had a deal and a couple of, no hits, but some really nice records. Um, but anyway, before that, he, he had a gig uh, on a Thursday night, and he said, we're playing in town, why don't you come and see us? It's like, sort of, we do some Lou Reed, Bowie covers, and, and a few of our own songs. It's in a place called the Revolution Club. So I st- lived outside the town centre then. I got a train in, I stumbled into this club, and it just blew my mind because um, up until that point, I thought I was pretty cool, you know. I was, I was, you know, a huge Bowie Roxy fan. Before that, I'd been a, sort of into my prog rock and stuff. Um, but it was, this was, I think this was November 1976, and I saw my first sort of punk rockers, although we never called ourselves that um and i immediately just went and cut my hair uh, chopped all my hair off my dad's wallpaper scissors and never wore those clothes again you know i just i it just changed my life and uh, anyway to put long story short over over the coming months i got to meet i i took i was i was at school with les pattinson and will Sargent from echo later to be an echo and the bunny man um uh, so I dragged them down, and um, so we, we were our own little kind of group within. It was all groups, Eric. It was all little subgroups. Um, but we got to meet Holly Johnson and Jane Casey and Paul Rutherford from Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Latest been Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And then I think around the March of '77, um, Julian came down to the club, uh, and I knew his girlfriend at the time vaguely to say hello to so she introduced us and um of course we got like a house on fire and met him McCulloch and you know within within I don't know nine months we were in a group together or trying you know yes uh, I never really looked look back um, yeah yeah excellent because um I always remember I watched a documentary on the kind of indie scene and they I always remember Jane Casey talking about that particular um, world of Eric's during that period and I remember her saying something which I always thought was quite amazing when she said you know we sort of wore our neurosis on stage so because there was such a sort of uh, incre- interesting and slightly sort of I think it was about having a bit of a 
um, tricky childhood and having to deal with that kind of process by sort of becoming an artist. So yeah, there was quite a lot of that within the Eric circle. There was a lot of um, uh, broken, you know, teenagers who've grown up in broken homes. And, you know, I think Jane was quoted, this is what they said, you know, we, we made a family of our own because our, <laughs> our own were all so fucked up, you know. Um, yeah, but if I'm really thankful that <laughs> my college friend Roy invited me down that night because I could have missed it, you know, or at least it could have taken another six months or a year before I caught up uh, because I was so early on. I mean, I'd missed the Pistols playing by three weeks, you know. Um, uh, it changed the whole course of my life. I mean, I was never going to really have a desk job, but um, I just saw that, this is what I wanted to do, you know. Yes, and it what, what's always boggling because I we're from you know based in Norwich, and we we had a few bands like the Farmers Boys and the Higsons and Serious Drinking, three yeah. basically, and um, and a few a few others which I can't even remember. But but when you look at sort of places like Liverpool and then Manchester, I mean I know that you know that's and obviously there would be London as well. But you just think, oh my God, it was so much happening. So I've often wondered and why there was such a lot of creativity and so many bands. And like I said, you know, Cherry Red brought out that compilation, had, you know, five discs for Liverpool, seven discs for Amer um, for, for Manchester. And, and so, every you know, it seemed like there must have been so many people being in bands or forming bands and not just kind of that thing that, you know, just playing in front of your friends and family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to see, you know, to come along. But, you know, obviously to to every everybody. So... What was the kind of, you know, what, I just, I suppose, I always, what was in the water? Um, well, well, it's, it's, you know, look, look at Mersey Beat. Forget the Beatles for a minute. There was, there was a lot going on in the 60s, really, here as well. Um, I think, I mean, I think a lot of people think it's something to do with the, the Irish... Oh, I'm sorry, my um... <laughs> Your partner saying, "Where are you?" Um, something to do with the the the, the yeah the Celtic in, influence really here. Um, I mean, you can't pass a pub still to this day. You know, on a Friday or Saturday night, there isn't <laughs> someone singing some hideous tune at the top of their lungs. Um, but basically, I don't know. I mean, you know, if you'd ask Bill Drummond, he said it's something with Matthew Street and the, the, all the ley lines converge there. He thinks there's a sort of power vortex. Oh, we'd love the power, power vortex. <laughs> would always, would always kind of. I mean, mostly that was to do with sort of um, more of the hippie, hippie uh, sort of community of you know sitting in sort of teepees and people telling you some sort of spiritual yeah. journey, which. Is, See, thing, thing. He's got a point. You see, which I'm talking about. You know, Eric's was um, directly opposite the cavern, and um, so to have two remarkable kind of world famous clubs <laughs> within ten yards of each other is pretty amazing. You know, um, but I, I think Eric's actually had a played a massive part. That's why there were so many bands. Everyone, we all met at Eric's and we saw our friends doing it. Uh, Liverpool, we, in Liverpool, we were all obsessed with Deaf School, who, who were our sort of local heroes. 
um, a death school rock kind of art rock band that straddled. There was a weird period around 1974, 75 into 76, just just before punk hit, um, where there was there was an alternative to to the to the um, progressive rock giants, these little sort of art school bands. And we really, we just loved death school. They dressed like Hollywood stars. And, and I mean, I don't mean kind of tuxedos, but they, they, they dressed like they were famous. And that, that had a huge impact on, on the rest of us. Um, because, and that's, I think that's why, a bit unlike Manchester and Birmingham and London in Liverpool, the, the actual punk thing with the kind of ripped jeans and the safety pins, it only lasted about three or four months. We'd all, we got bored of it very quickly. And um, there was a real dressing up thing. I didn't, and, I don't, and that could mean dressing down, but I famously went to Eric's one night wearing a radiation suit I'd bought in the Army Navy stores. And it, my sister had to fasten me into it because it didn't have any buttons. I had these sort of weird ribbons at the back. Um, and that was normal. I mean, Jane Casey used to wear a nappy, like a, a child nappy. Um, <laughs> it was kind of normal. But I, we'd, we'd sort of moved on. We got bored with actual punk. Yes. Uh, very quickly we moved on we we moved into the post-punk earlier than everyone else i think anyway. yes and that's the first part of my interview with paul simpson from the wild swans talking about those early years i hope you're going to be making notes because i will test you at the end because we have a lot of chat but anyway this is going to be another track by the band i mean if you like the wild swans this is solid gold easy action fill your boots if you don't then frankly well you should that's all I'm going to have to say about the matter because um, class band. Anyway, this is a track titled Whirlpool Heart. <laughs> Oh, 
Nothing wrong with that. That is the Wild Swans with a track titled Whirlpool Heart. That also came from their 1988 album, Bringing Home the Ashes. I should play another a track from a different album, shouldn't I? Anyway, I love that album. And if you haven't listened to it for ages, just put it on. It will blow your mind. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Paul from the band, uh, where I'd been talking about the narrative of most bands, which normally lasts about five years. The early years, the first album, then the tricky second album. Anyway, this was Paul's response. Paul, what was the narrative of the band? Tell us more. Well, you know, I've been I've, I've been the keyboard player in the in the, in the Theatre of Explodes. Well, I've been the keyboard player in Shallow Madness, which was the Theatre of Explodes. But when Ian McCulloch was singing for us, um, I recorded Sleeping Gas with the Teardrops, and then the eve of recording the Teardrop second single, Bouncing Babies, I decided I didn't want to do it. I didn't, I wasn't enjoying it. It wasn't very satisfying to me because I felt like, although I can appreciate the early Teardrops stuff now, at the time, because I, you know, I named the group, I co-founded it with Julian and named the group and kind of gave the group its aesthetic originally because I was into my clothes and the rest of them weren't. Um, but I didn't really think that the music we were starting to make was representative of our influences. And what I mean by that is we were really into Perubu, The Fall, This Heat, maybe you know that it was quite left field stuff you know or, you know leftish field stuff and um i could hear the band the teardrops were going, getting more and more poppy and less experimental and i just thought i don't want to do this i don't want to do this i want to do something else so i left uh, and we stayed friends and everything and um, I spent the next kind of, I think it was about eight or nine months put, trying to put together a Wild Swans Mark One, um, which I did. We we got off to a great start. Bill Drummond offered to, because I'd already been on Zoo Records with, with the Teardrops, Bill Drummond offered to put out uh, our 12 um, inch single, Rev Spirit. Be, well, actually, he didn't. Uh, he, he did. That's not actually what happened at all. Um, <laughs> Peter Freitas, the drummer, late great drummer in Echo and the Bunnymen, was a friend of ours. Um, we'd been on tour sporting the Bunnymen, and um, Bill liked us, but he hadn't offered to put a record out. So Pete had just got his first earnings from the Bunnymen, and he said, I'll put you in the studio, I'll produce it. Now, weirdly, that the evening before we recorded Revenue Spirit, I gave our drummer, Justin, a knock at his, uh, his, his bed sit next door to mine, and he wouldn't come out. He just refused to come out. I, I, I still to this day don't know what happened there. Um, so he couldn't play in it. So Pete ended up playing on it. And, of course, he did his <laughs> greatest favour. Not only did he pay for the session, but he drummed on it, and he... So we've got this powerhouse drumming on that that debut uh, uh, A and B side. Um, then Bill, when he Bill heard it, Bill and Dave Balf, uh put it out, and it got 
singles of the week in both music papers and um, John Peel played it to death and invited us to do a session. Uh, but we, um, I used to suffer from depression and I was having a bad time. Uh, no, no biggie, but just kind of, you know, I just wanted to be on my own for a week. So I, but I, I didn't tell, I didn't tell the others this. I just needed to be on my own. And so while I was having my little depression, um, Jerry, our guitarist, uh, decided that I didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> and um, so he kind of pretty much took the Wild Swans band I'd handpicked, changed the name of the group, got someone else in and became the Lotus Eaters. So half, half the Lotus Eaters album is our old Wild Swans songs I'm not credited for, you know. Um, but... Um, Yes, so I was I was very if I was depressed before that when I found out I was I was absolutely um, I was crestfallen you know I couldn't couldn't speak for weeks. Then um, I decided to do some demos and um, I. Couldn't play. Is part. I'm not a great guitarist. I could come up with some interesting songs on the guitar, but I'm not. I was trying to get someone better than me to play on them, and um, so I wrote this part that I, I couldn't actually play. So Will Sargent lived nearby, Bunny Manuel, old friend of mine. So I went around to his place, and he couldn't play it either. So. Um, but he was sharing a flat with Ian Brody. Ian Brody came down and played it straight away. And as I was leaving, I didn't know Ian very well because although I knew he'd been big in Japan, he'd also left, he left in 77, 78 and lived in London because he joined a band called The Original Mirrors, which was deaf school sort of spin-off. Um, so I didn't know Ian that well, but he said, well, you've done me, I've done you the favour of playing on your demo. Will you sing on mine? Which is what I did. And then next thing I know, Bill Drummond has taken this song and got us a record deal from the label that we're going to sign in the Wild Swans. <laughs> we split up anyway. So that was a bit of an odd one for me because it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I, Ian and I never really intended to be a group. Um, but uh, so, yes. So anyway, we, 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 signed the deal, we made three singles, and we were in the middle of an album when I, the old black dog depression came back, and I suddenly realized, oh my God, this isn't actually, I don't really believe in this. I was meant to do The Wild Swans, and it was taken from me. So I walked out in the middle of the album, um, which didn't please anyone, um, and set about putting the Wild Swans back together. So it was just pretty weird because I had, I had some sort of forgiving to do to, to get back with the old guys, but I realized how easy it would be to reform with the original members. Um, and then that very quickly, we, Janice Long, who's a longtime friend and supporter of the group, uh, asked us to do a session and Seymour Stein of Sire Records heard it and offered us a two album deal instantly which we took, 
uh, signing directly to the American label, not to the English, to the Warner Brothers offshoot. Um, yes, did that for um, another couple of years, and then uh, Jerry and I had a had a, another had some more issues, um, loyalty issues. So um, yeah, I did the second of those records on my own. Uh, with a, pulling in friends and favors um, from musician friends, um, and then the kind of nineties happened. Really, I suppose that was the end of the eighties. I know it's a very strange and interesting world being rock and roll. It always seems so glamorous from the outside, looking in, especially as a fan. But um, when you hear a lot of stories, it can be a bit different. Anyway, that is the second part of my interview with Paul Simpson from the Wild Swans. <laughs> Lots more of that, I can tell you, with some exciting more information. But before anything else, I think we should have another have another track. This is also going to be taken from a jo- the John Peel session from 1982. This is titled No Bleed. Dude.
And that's the Wild Swans with a track called No Bleeding that came from their 1982 John Peel session. This is David E. So this, the C86 show, and this is going to be the third part of my interview with Paul Simpson, um, where we were talking about that period from the 80s to the 90s. Also, I had been babbling for ages about the uh, the change in musical scene from that indie years to the dance to the grunge period and so on and so forth. And this was Paul's response to that fascinating chat that I was having with him. Paul, what was your response to those changing musical moments of the 80s, 90s, etc.? Yeah, well, actually, it was 89 um, because the trouble with... I did this album called Space Flower, which pretty, pretty much, you know, I wrote it myself. And I, I was cutting off my nose to spite my face. I was so hurt by the betrayal of my bandmates, I rejected everything I'd ever sort of believed in, that whole young mm, idealistic brotherhood, fraternity, um, British kind of thing. I just rejected the whole thing. Again, because I, I, I went fell into a terrible depression um, in between those two albums. And I just curled up. I'd, I'd moved to a new place uh, um, outside of the town centre for the first time. And um, basically, so I didn't get any visitors. I didn't want any. I just um, curled up in my room um reading children's books and um listening to a lot of bubblegum pop really uh so i don't honestly i look back now i, I don't know what i was thinking um but sire loved it but they didn't release it for a year so that's a long time when you're sitting in your bedroom um, and it, I didn't feel like it. I'd sort of <laughs> mentally sobered up after a year. I didn't, you know, I, I saw it for what it was. Just, oh, God, this is a really weird anomaly. Wild Swans fans are going to hate this, you know. Um, and it never even got a UK release at all until about 15 years ago. Um, it, it, you could buy it on import, you know. Um, yeah, so... So when the 90s, I mean, did you then have a, a moment of that record of saying the Wild Swans, that's the end? Well, I've never, I've never really, we, we never split up because I am the Wild Swans. I'm the only constant in the Wild Swans. So, you know, I'm just inactive. I've not split up. Split up. Um, so I've been inactive the last few years, but I'm not split. Um, <laughs> I, the Wild Swans still exist. Um, so yeah, no, that was a really that was a pretty horrible time actually, and I was I was doing quite a bit of drugs and um, drinking too much, just trying to. I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken from the first time, let alone the second time. I never really got over it because I I saw my life's work as the Wild Swans. That was a mission, I had to, something I had to fulfill, and it had been taken from me, stolen from me, really. And um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I went through a very weird 
patch. Um, and then I, I literally couldn't sing anymore because my heart was broken. Um, so I started doing instrumental music under the name Skyray. Like the, there was a lolly ice when we were kids called Skyray. Um, and weirdly enough, when I stopped trying, I got my biggest success. So I started getting played on Match of the Day a lot and TV adverts. And it wasn't a great deal of money, but money was coming in for the first time, you know, uh, ironically from this instrumental music. So I did that for 10 years. You know, I did gigs. I The smallest of which was upstairs in the garage in London to about 30 people. And the biggest was the Royal Festival Hall playing with Julian on his cornucopia in 2000. Um, but I did that for exactly 10 years, and then I um, decided that I wanted to make a third Wild Swans album. So I did. Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you decided to, to sort of think, this is kind of Mark three. did you pull together the original band or was this no 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 I decided that um it was like catching your girlfriend if the mark one period band, I caught my girlfriend in bed with someone else but I forgave her a few years later and we started going out again and we had some children or had, we had another child the sire album um and then I caught her in bed again yes it's a tricky world. So that was that was so so that was Space Flower. So on the third album, this is is this the one that the college hundred years, yeah. Right. So yeah, so just explain how that came together. Well, I just it just started bubbling up inside me. I just thought I am gonna make I think I'm gonna make another last one's album. And then that day I bumped into a guy called Peasy who manages Echo and the Bunnyman. And I said, I've just had a terrible idea, Peasy. I'm going to make a, a new Wild Swans album. And he said, that's not a terrible idea. That's the best idea you had in a decade. You know? So um, it hugely encouraged me. And um, so, and he told me, he said, hey, you've got a real fan in Ricky Mamie from the Brian Jonestown Massacre. And I thought, weird, you know. Uh, he's always asking if if you're in town you know when he's when he's in liverpool he's always asking he wants to meet you you know anyway they were on tour not not much long maybe a month later they came to liverpool and um pz put me in touch with him he got me on the guest list so i met him and he he is a huge fan he's a huge fan very very knowledgeable great respecter of everything i've ever done I'm huge just a fan of music generally um and he said, hey, man, I want to work with you, you know. And um, so he came back to my place. I played him some of these demos I'd been doing on a pause studio. Um, and, we, and he immediately started playing on them. Now, coincidentally, he was sleeping on the floor of a guy called Mike Mooney, who was an old friend of mine from years before. Um, and Mike Mooney, in the meantime, had been playing in Played in Bunny Men briefly, he played in Julian Cope's band, he, and then famously played in Spiritualized. 
think spiritual answer was the last thing he'd, he'd been working with. So I said, tell Mike to come over. So then Mike started playing on my demos. Um, uh, Ricky knew a drummer from um, uh, down south who drove up. And be yeah, we'd, I, before I knew it, I had a band, you know. Um, and and was that, you know, because cause there's one thing that I've one of my obsessions with David Bowie and I'd always been amazed the way he was able to sort of just pull together bands for different projects and then let that go and then do another project with another band. So how did that feel sort of, because this is apart from Les from Echo, this was a completely new lineup, wasn't it? With no baggage. Yes. Uh, and that was, I was fine with that because I knew I sort of already written the album, so I knew it couldn't, go too far from the blueprint. And I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to use the original 1980 sort of Wild Swans blueprint of twin guitars, bass and drums really. Um, and a sort of that sort of post-punk attitude, but with huge ambition. Um, and, um, yeah, it just, it, it worked. You know, I, I had to do a little bit of shepherding, do we call it, in the studio to stop it. You know, because, of course, Ricky's, although he loves, he loves all kinds of music, he's, his, what he does is, is psychedelia, really. And, um, and I didn't want that to... I remember having that conversation with him, really. I didn't say, you, I don't want psychedelia. I said, I prefer um, mysticism to psych psychedelics. So <laughs> I, that, I'm, fine with, I'm fine with mysticism creeping into this album. Yes. Really just, is it possible just give me an example? Because um, because when you say mysticism, I was I almost had a God. I was thinking of the Incredible String Band, but that's probably. Well, I suppose I suppose. What do I mean? I suppose um, I suppose I mean kind of sacred something. A psychedelia to me is is. It's not a sh a shared. It's a it's it's an internal journey, and I suppose, I suppose yeah, um, I suppose what I meant was a bigger, broader, less selfish Delia. Yes, <laughs> and that is the third part of my interview with Paul Simpson from The Wild Swans, talking about the complexity of the creative process, and there is quite a lot of complexity, as well as interest in band dynamics. Don't go into the music industry if you don't want to have interest in interpersonal complexities with people. That's what we say. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show, and this is going to be another track by The Wild Swans. This is Taste Like Tuesday. <laughs>
And that's the Wild Swans with a track titled Tastes Like Tuesday from the album Space Flower. If you haven't heard it lately or not heard it at all, do check it out. It's amazing. Anyway, this is David Eastall, the C86 show. This is going to be the third or fourth part of my interview with Paul. I'm losing count, but not finding it fascinating anyway. Um, Well, I found it fascinating. But this is uh, where we were talking about that particular album and whether I was, um, yes, whether he was thinking this was going to be his kind of masterpiece, his pet sounds, his Sergeant Pepper. And this was Paul's response, reply. Paul, take it away. No, 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 I'm not. I'm never that confident. Uh, I... The, the, I did see a glimmer. I'd done a demo version um, of English Electric Lightning, but it was called Punk Jerusalem was its working title, which gives you... That says it all really, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, sort of punk William Blake. Um, and, and so, I, yes, I, but I didn't... I, 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 I'm quite proud of that album, but it's not... There's still some things on there I regret, <laughs> um, but I think that's normal. It, 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 I think you'd have to be very arrogant to believe, you know, that that what you were making was a masterpiece. Yes, it's, it's, but stage. Yeah, well, sometimes these things line up, and you're thinking, "Wow, this is the moment." Because, and but then you also you embarked on a tour as well to 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 with this album. So was that an enjoyable experience going out and doing it? No, I hate playing live. Um, I absolutely hate playing live. Um, but on a good night, it was fantastic. On a bad night, I just wanted to die. It was, I wish I'd never started. You know, um, but this is why I'm. This is why I'm driving a modest little car um, because I'm not, unlike my more famous friends, I don't do. There's things I'm not prepared to do um, for it, and. Uh, it's, it was confidence. It's a lack of confidence. When I was 22, I was, I was kind of nervous, but I was, I knew who I was. I was supremely confident. I lost all my confidence in that Mark One split, and it's taken me, you know, bloody 40 years to to get it back, really. Um, and I. Um, what happened, this is quite interesting, what happened after Coldest Winter, so we did we did a UK tour and we went to the Philippines because the Wild Swans are huge in the Philippines, like Rolling Stones big, that's just hilarious. Um, it doesn't do me an awful lot of good. They pay me quite well to go over there, but everything's kind of bootlegged um, out there. Uh, and bless them, I mean, the, the gorgeous people, but they, they don't really realise, so... They'll queue up for you know three hours of signing autographs. I'm signing T-shirts and I'm signing albums, but very few of those albums and T-shirts are genuine. The typefaces are wrong, the colours wrong. Yeah, I can just tell. Um, I don't say anything, you know. but um, so God's having a laugh really because if it made me huge in Germany or Japan or somewhere, I'd be a millionaire because we're, we're huge, huge. In the um, Yes. Um, anyway, so when I came back from 
Manila, I went to Sri Lanka. I'd only ever had holidays in Anglesey, or the Highlands. I call Scousers, Anglesey. Um, I went to Sri Lanka and somewhere in the jungle, I caught a parasite, they, we think, through the sole of my foot and it made me quite ill and it damaged my lungs. Um, and it also, that illness, it depleted me. It's a little bit like malaria type symptoms. Um, so it was exhausted. For the first year I was exhausted all the time. I and mean, luckily we've got the School of Tropical Medicine in Liverpool. So six months attending there and a year and a half with the top thoracic um, consultant at the Royal Liverpool Hospital. Um, and they could only determine that I'd had some sort of tropical virus. It wasn't going to kill me. Uh, I would probably get better within two years. Well, seven years passed, I and mean, I was no better until this um, new year when my partner, um, I just said I, I felt like I should get fit. You know, I've, I've never been, I'm always slim, I'm not overweight, but I just thought, you know, man of a certain age, I could, could probably start getting fit. I sort of mentioned that might be an idea if I joined a gym, so she, as a surprise, she won my sort of Christmas presents with gym, gym membership. So I started running and exercising, and that really just my health has improved about 75% since. Uh, mid-January, uh, which, and I'm thinking, well, at this rate, by September, I should be back to where I was. And as such, I'm booking some gigs for the end of the year and next year, and I'm making in the fourth Wild Swans album. Um, it's mostly written, uh, but I haven't put the band around it yet. Although Ricky maybe was in town a fortnight ago and uh, we hung out together um, and talked about working together. Okay. Wow. So, you know, this, because I think you know, when you were saying you got fit, I was, you know, in that story, I was thinking that was a while back. But no, it's it's all going to, you know, you're going to turn, you're going to complete this decade, but next decade, rocking. Yeah, well, I honestly, I've, my... The, the the biggest and most important thing about feeling better, getting well, is my confidence is back. And I, I hadn't realized how low I'd fallen with it um, again. And um, I'm feeling really good. And um, the new songs, I think, are easy as good as the last album if not better i mean obviously I, I want it to be better i'm going to be a little bit more rigorous with uh what goes on next time there's a couple of tracks on that last one i'm i i don't love you know but um i never learned my lesson i, I didn't let them quite but the mix down <laughs> i listen to other people like oh no it's amazing you know um so yes and uh, of course, I feel because I've been through quite a lot since the last record, um, I feel a lot more 
capable of I trust myself now. I think my instincts are pretty good. They always have been. I, I can smell what's coming. Now, that doesn't mean you know, I'm not going to make a purely electronic album or anything, but I, 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 I do want it to be a progression from the last album. I don't want it to be Coldest Part 2. Yes. Sonically, lyrically, I want it to be a, 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 another step, you know, a, a step up. And that can only be a, a good thing. That is The Wild Swans. That's Paul Simpson talking about the new album or the new material that's going to be coming out, hopefully towards the end of this year. Wow, exciting stuff. Anyway, I think we'll play one more track and then the last part of that interview. This is also taken from a BBC session. I do believe it was from sort of July 1982. This was on the Kid Jensen, Kid Jensen show. And this is titled Opium. I think you'll like it.
The Wild Swans with a track titled Opium from the Kid Jensen's Session, recorded on the 3rd of February 1982. This is going to be the last part of my interview with Paul Simpson from the band where I had been babbling on about David Bowie. I always mention David Bowie in interviews. And Lemmy, there you go, I've just given away all my secrets there, and uh, talking about the kind of changes that Bowie did, especially during the 70s, and uh, all the different sonic moments that he had. And this was Paul's response to my fascinating conversation, all a bit of a rant there about Bowie, and this is it. Paul, take it away. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, did, do, I did take a risk with Space Flower after what had gone before it, but... Um, as I say, it wasn't released for a year, so it was kind of, it kind of didn't make the impact. I think it would have done a year earlier because it was anticipating a little bit of what was coming in the next few years. Um, but yes, I mean, I don't even I've just I've written the songs and sort of demoed them at home on my computer, um, so I don't know where they will go in the studio. Um, but I'm absolutely open to experimenting. You know, I don't want, I don't want to just record it like it's, you know, 1982 again. No. And do you feel that um, by changing your physiology and sort of focusing more on the body mm. and getting out of your head, that mm. has kind of shifted something emotionally in you? Um, yes, I do. I mean, so much has happened in the last few years. It's not just... Or perhaps it, it, it was, I was going to say indirectly, it might be disparately. I, I was in, I was married and uh, I've divorced now. I've got a, uh, a grown up son. A lot, a lot's happened in, in the space between Coldest Winter and, um, and the new record. Um, so, yes. I mean, the, the thing is, I've always been in, in my head. I've never really been in my body. So it's a novelty to actually be in my body. But I don't want, I quite like being in my head as well. But I, don't, I, I don't want to um, start writing Bruce Springsteen songs or something. Um, um, the Eye of the Tiger. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. And did you, I mean, have you over these decades kind of made peace with that kind of mark one and the and the no <laughs> no not for a second no well funnily enough i just got back from cornwall i've been staying with jed quinn the keyboard the original keyboard player in the wild swans uh who's a very successful fine artist now um the, the guy who painted the cover to coldest winter right yeah um so uh of course we got horrendously drunk and we started talking about the old days and no I'm, I'm i won't be over it till i'll never be over it you know because i was it, it's like your first heartbreak you know the first girl that breaks your heart like the first it's like the first first relationship that 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 ends you know you, you you never really get over that do you no and and obviously they had a single, didn't they, which got everywhere. It must... Listen, I've never really talked about this, but, um, yeah, it was the biggest radio hit of the year, wasn't it? I think 80, was it 83? Um, it was. I seem to remember Annie Nightingale saying something about it. She was a bit obsessed. I remember Annie Nightingale on Sunday evenings would have a show and she often... Oh, she referred to it as the prettiest song she'd ever heard. That was it. Yes, well, she would, but if, if you go and listen to the Wild Swans... Um, 
BBC sessions, you'll hear that song was used to be called. Um, oh, excuse me, one second. Uh, that um, song used to be uh, well, it's one song. They just put a new melody on top, um, a new lyrics. Um, yes, sorry, it was called Opium. It was, I think, it was on a Kid Jensen session. Right. But, but a couple of tracks off that Los Cesars um, album. Or we're all whilst one songs that we, that we recorded. That's that's how I can't believe they, they did it to me. <laughs> yeah. And being in a place like Liverpool, did you ever bump into each other and go, oh, blimey, this is um, no. Weirdly enough, we didn't. Uh, but but awkwardly, we we did bump into each other in the record company in London because they signed. Lotus Eats signed to the label that we were going to sign the Wild Swans. They took my deal as well, you see. Uh, but so did me and Ian Brody. We both signed to Arista. So we, but the receptionist had very strict orders from me that we would never be in the building at the same time. But we did one day. It was hideous. <laughs> my God. Did you, did you just think about that all the time? Yes, of course. Every every car I passed on the street, would, you know, was playing. Their, their bloody song was playing. You know, as it still happens to me now. You know, it's on Top of the Pops too. And you know, um, it's on every kind of eighties compilation. You know. Yes, and when you were speaking to Jed, did did you say did he does he sort of also share your pain, or did he just say? Oh. Yeah, no, yes, absolutely. He he wasn't. He didn't. He didn't hang around for very long. Um, because he had his own issues with them. Um, so he wasn't there for very long. But, you know, I always respected Jed because he, was, he really wanted to be a painter. And, it, and he's proven himself. He's, he's massively successful by an artist. Um, and he wasn't the architect of it anyway. So let's just <laughs> say that. Did you ever feel a bit like, you know, Christ on the cross? Say, you know, Every fucking day. <laughs> <laughs> Shouting, forgive them, Lord, they do not understand. Yeah, no, I don't forgive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that is... I've never actually, you know, in all these interviews, I've never heard, that, heard it. I suppose there's always a little bit of a different story to all these kind of um, the narrative to being in a band. And and I suppose that is one that I've never sort of come across before, actually. I suppose, you you know, that is, a, that is quite a unique kind of chapter in anyone's life. Mm, yes, well... <laughs> um, yeah, but yes. <laughs> and what would and what do you? I mean, it's kind of a tricky one because I often ask this to people. You know, what what you would say to your eighteen year old self starting out? But you might have quite a few things to say to to a young person beginning their musical journey. Yeah. Well, no, I, I don't think it would to anyone else because everyone's got their own their own um, mission, haven't they? Uh, but I wouldn't, thing is, I wouldn't listen to myself. I just think, piss off, old man, you know. Yes. <laughs> um, and I didn't listen to advice, you know. I didn't listen to advice when I was young. Um, but if I could, I, I, I would, I, I suppose I, I wish I'd been, had a little bit, I trusted my instincts more, you know, and hadn't, hadn't been swayed so easily and, 
and lost faith in myself so easily. You know, it, it didn't take much to 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 put me in bed for a week. You know. Yes. Um, well, it's interesting because a few people, you know, like the, the the bands that often a lot of people talk about are being sort of so influential. You know, even. Eight, you know, 80s bands sort of I suppose about their peers and it was always the go-betweens June Brides and mm. the Smiths where you know often get mentioned those three and and mm. it's interesting that that with the, a lot of the bands that I've I've sort of interviewed and, and listened to religiously I suppose it's always boggling when you know like the one that really seemed to sort of sail through being small and then just make it and then just become bigger and bigger are people like you too and it's like and a few people have mentioned you know like what would it be like to be Bono? Because most people just couldn't imagine, you know, knowing how fragile things are with, with the, the dynamic within the, the band, the, the, the relationship, keeping your eye on the prize, not, killing, not wanting to stab each other in the back, and also to have that bravado and not just want to shrink away when you feel a bit of self-doubt. And, and I guess, you know, there aren't that many people who can do that. No, I, I think one of the problems with... Our biggest problem is we never had management. The Wild Ones never really had management. The one time in our careers when we did have management, we had the best manager in the world, a guy called Marcus Russell. And uh, but what? I, I don't think he even knows this. You know, when we signed to Sire, we were encouraged to drop him. You know, they, they wanted control over us. They didn't want us to have this really good manager who would fight them over points and things. Um, and we we were weak and we listened to them. We shouldn't have done. And that, to prove what a mistake it was, the next band Marcus Russell managed was Oasis. You know, um, he was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> apart from that little six months with Marcus, we didn't have management. And whereas our, you know our contemporaries did, YouTube famously had, had very good management. You know, um, and I think that's all we needed really. Just needed to, someone to someone to keep telling us it, it, everything was okay, and to get us to just concentrate on writing good songs, you know. And, um, yes, keep yeah. your keep your eye on the prize, I guess. And have you ever wanted to um, kind of write your autobiography, you know? And, and I've, done of... I've done it. Um, yes, I last year I launched. Um, I, it's called Incandescent. I launched it with a uh, online kind of kind of like literary posh crowdfunding called Unbound. They had some big writers, um, Stephen Friedrich, for them. And, uh, oh, oh yes, and, and Charles Sharma. No, not Charles Sharma. Um, Murray Lachlan Young brought his poetry book out. I think on Unbound. Yeah. Yeah, but it was a, I think it was a bit of a mistake. And the mistake I made was it's not one book, as they told me. I've written three. It's huge. And um, as a consequence, it's a kind of a £30 book, you know, with um, 12 pages of colour photos. We over it – was, it was too big a project. So what happened was I'm in the wild swans. I'm not in U2, you see. So I've got a kind of finite fan base – um, so it spiked, got this huge spike at the beginning where it went straight up to 50% and stayed there. And, it, and then they kind of unbound and really push it for me because they don't. They expect you to do all the work on social media. Well, I just didn't want to do that. I didn't, I, I don't really like using 
social media to sell things. You know, I don't mind alerting people to there's a new record out, but I don't like hassling people daily, you know, buy my thing, buy my thing, pledge for this. I don't really like pledging yeah. people, you know. Right? It's, it, Roxy didn't have to do it, Bowie didn't have to do it, you know. I don't want to do it. Uh, so it's kind of it's kind of stalled really there, but it belongs to me. I can walk away. I haven't walked away really. Um, but it's just it just needs publishing. If you know anyone, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, what a shit! Because yes, because I, I interviewed was it Mark Burgess from um, yes. the Chameleons, and he'd done his autobiography as well. I think a lot of people are just getting it off their chest. Even Wayne Hussey from The Mission, I think, has got an autobiography out. And and yeah. uh, Jim Bob from Carter just published a book. So obviously it's something that a lot of people enjoy doing. Did you did you feel like it was quite a cathartic experience? Yes, but I mean, I've been doing it for 20 years. It, that's why it's such a tome, you see. And I, I, I can't end it because life hasn't ended. You know, there's always another story. Uh, I didn't like people's people suggesting, well, why don't you end it in 2000 when you played with Julian again after years? And I just thought, because that's not my, that's not where the story ends, you know. I mean, it, it might end soon with this record, I guess. I don't know how long I can go on doing it. It's, you know, it's it takes a lot of doing when you, you know, I don't do anything else. I don't have a day job. Uh, financing these things is, is always a problem. Yes. Very and you, you don't make a great deal. You're lucky if you make your money back, really. You spend on the damn things. You, but I try and I try and pay for it myself so I can keep control of it. Wise decision. That is the last part of my interview with Paul Simpson from The Wild Swans, talking about his uh, book that um, he wrote, but it doesn't sound like it came out. And also about the, um, before that, the new album that The Swan, Wild Swans will be releasing hopefully sometime this year. But that, sadly, is the end of the show. Thank you ever so much for listening. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via uh, Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there always lurking away. And uh, you can hear any of these shows um, on the usual podcast kind of platforms, which is kind of um, C86, and that's on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, and Podbean. But anyway, thank you ever so much. Um, have a great week. And I'll leave you with a couple more songs by the Wild Swans. This is going to be Melting Blue Delicious. Have a great week.
From the white horse of Uppington to Boscombe Down, can you hear me? From Portland Bill up to Pendle Hill, can you hear me? From the Menai Straits to the Northern Lakes, can you hear me? From the Zanna Coast to Scotland Road, can you hear me? This town is falling to bits, and I don't like it. We need a bonfire lit, and I'll ignite it. From the checkout girl to the 14th Earl, are you with me? From the lifeboat crew to the theatre queue, are you with me? From the treasury man to the fish and chip van, are you with me? From the fourth in line to the last down the mine, are you with me? This town is falling to bits, but I don't like it. We need a bonfire lit, and I'll ignite it. This town is falling to bits, and I don't like it. We need a bonfire lit, and I'll ignite it.